this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey there, it's John Warlow. Listen, if you're brand new to Built to Sell Radio, welcome. It's good to have you along for the ride. We've been doing this show now for five years. I've interviewed literally a different entrepreneur every week for the past five years, and I've taken some of their best practices, their their tips and tricks and negotiation hacks, and distilled them all into a field guide. It's a book called The Art of Selling your business. And it is a little bit of a recipe card for you to punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating with an acquirer. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. Do you remember back in high school when you got busted for not doing your homework? Well, today I got thoroughly busted because as you're about to hear in this upcoming interview, I had no idea who Jim Estel is and was. When I actually got into this interview, as you'll hear, I got really caught off guard by how much he invested in starting this little company we're going to talk about called Shipper B. Well, I then came to learn about Jim's resume, and it is blow your mind. Incredible. So he starts a company called EMJ Data, builds it up to $350 million in annual revenue before taking it public and ultimately getting it acquired by another Fortune 500 company. He then goes to sit on the board of BlackBerry around the time that Barack Obama is starting to use the BlackBerry device. And he literally ushered in the entire iPhone era of using smart devices. He is a venture capitalist. He's invested in more than 100 businesses. And he's also bought Danby Appliances, which today generates some 400 million dollars in annual sales. But that's not the company we chose to talk about. Three years ago, Jim had a little idea, and it was to start a company called Shipper B. And I'll let him describe the business to you. But he went from a standing start three years later to 150 employees when he decided to sell the business. To hear the entire story is the one, the only, Jim Estel. Jim Estel, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about Shipper B. What does this company do? So Shipper B is a courier business, but it's a new courier that uses technology to deliver parcels, but it's just like uh, UPS or FedEx um, delivering when, business to consumer products. When you say technology, I, my mind all of a sudden goes to drones. I, I think of like Amazon and the, like the, the drones dropping off the parcel on the doorstep and flying away. Like, is that the technology you're talking about? Uh, no, I mean, ultimately, I suppose it could be drone ready. But no, the technology is rather than going hub and spoke, which is the old courier model. Someone picks up a parcel in Guelph, it goes to a sort center in Mississauga, then back to Kitchener. It rather, we, we put a whole bunch of mini sort centers. We call them hives because the name of the company is Shipper Bee. So things simply hop from hive to hive to hive as opposed to going to a, a sort center. And the computers do the sorting and the tracking instead of uh, people doing the sorting. So, okay. So this is kind of interesting because I'm a little familiar with the kind of FedEx business model, right? Where they have these regional shipping hubs where stuff gets, I I go back, what's the Tom Hanks movie, the Hanks movie where he gets stuck on the island? 
the castaway? I, I don't remember, but okay. But I go back to that. Well, well, there's a movie called, I think it's called Castaway. Tom Hanks is like a FedEx guy and they walk through these distribution centers where they're taking all the parcels and moving along conveyor belts and stuff like that. So I'm starting to get a little sense of what it, it does. But these hives, are they physical locations that you okay, have? So they're physical hives. They look a lot like uh, lo- Amazon lockers or lockers that people okay. pick things up. That, and so when people see them, they instantly think, oh, you're a locker company. You're, you're for me to go pick up my parcels. No, we're not a locker company. In this case, the lockers are used as transfer points so that a driver drops off parcels, another driver picks up the parcels, and it works a little like a Pony Express. Um, so it basically... Um, and doing it the way we do it, we could actually save 71.3% of the greenhouse gas per parcel ship. So there's a greenhouse gas savings and we're not backtracking like uh, normal hub and spoke. So hub and spoke was invented, I think in the sixties or seventies and it was revolutionary. And then all of a sudden, um, and, and, but that technology back then didn't have the ability to do what technology has can do now. So everything right now is, on, is an app and every driver has an app. So, um, and we also use gig economy drivers. So that's another part of our model, which is not normal in the hub and spoke model. You would be a, you could be a driver, drive for two hours later in the day, um, whenever you, you wanted to, right? Got it. And so what was the business model? Like, how did you guys make money? Uh, so we would sell to businesses. Uh, who would, we'd pick up uh, 50 parcels at a business or 100 parcels at a business, we, and we would distribute them to hives, and then drivers would pick them up at hives, deliver them to other hives. Someone would pick up from those hives and deliver them to the end customer. So the customer, all the customer knows is you placed an order on a um, .com site, and you got your parcel the next day, just like you do when you, you, know, you order from Amazon or whatever. Um, but we were just moving the parcels differently. It was mostly business to consumer, some business to business. So uh, I could ship you a product that could be picked up in my business, go to your business, but uh, it's not consumer shipping. So you would not ship, um, like we're not going to pick up something at your house. We only pick up from businesses. Got it. Okay. So let's say I'm a pool, swimming pool manufacturing company and I ship uh, pumps to all my sh- swimming pool retailers, I might right. use Shipper B to That's ship exactly. the pumps through the, the network. One question I have is, is these, these, there, there are all these points of failure along the way, or in my mind, potential points of failure where you have these hives that are different drivers along the way and, and not all kind of Shipper B employees. Was that a risk that you thought about in terms of like, oh, well, I'm, you know what well, I mean? You know what I'm getting at? That, that was an objection to the business, but it's the same as FedEx. FedEx driver that picks up at your, at your office is not the FedEx driver that delivers it to the end destination. So it gets picked up by one FedEx driver, dropped to a hub, which gets sorted by other employees, which you, you again, you don't know. It goes through multiple hands. It may go on to a transport truck that goes to another mini sort. Then it goes to a, a, a truck and gets delivered. So it's already going through the same number of hands, often less hands, because we're not, uh, we're shortening the distance. And uh, people also try to make this a distinction. Our, our gig economy uh, drivers go through the same background check as you, as you do, as, as a FedEx driver. So why would a FedEx driver be more honest than a gig driver? There is no reason. So you have the same thing. Plus in a new economy, drivers all get rated, where I'm not sure that FedEx has the ability to rate to say, 
wait a minute, this, uh, par- this truck driver seems to have greater loss than this other truck driver. But we, um, and the grading also happens, starts right at the business that ships. They say, yes, the, the driver's polite. And, and all the way through to the consumer who gets it says, yes, the driver's polite and, uh, and did a good job on delivery. So it, grading has been shown to create a better quality of employee, which when Uber started, that's why people said, gee, Uber, they're pretty polite. Well, that's but, they get they get graded like how come the taxi driver doesn't keep their taxi as clean because it was kind of a monopoly they didn't need to now you don't you rarely get in an uber that's not pretty clean because they know that i'm going to give them a bad rating if it's trashed but these hives are in relative anonymity right because if i'm the pool the swimming pool company i can i guess rate my driver who picks up the pumps and says yeah you look like a decent guy or gal or whatever but then it goes to a hive which is an not topical object like it's not a person that that's correct and so on the hive has a um, camera on it so we can see the driver drop it off okay. the hive has a checkway system so the hive says oh you dropped off a 10 pound parcel and then the next driver picks it up. They scan the parcel, but it says you picked up 10 pounds. And, and the, the high beeps at you, screams at you. said, wait a minute, you didn't pick up 10 pounds. You picked up 12 pounds. And so there's camera continuity. We GPS track the driver so we can know exactly where your pool pump is along the 401, um, which is better than most couriers right now. And uh, it, it, it actually is less hands touching the parcel because there's no one sold the parcel. Uh, but this but, is, you're blowing my mind right now. Like, I feel like I've, I, I've never heard of, like, I've never heard of this technology and you're blowing my mind that it's, it, it's such a thing. I, this is great because of course I've heard of Uber and Airbnb and all the other gig economy apps out there, but this is really for business to business shipping. It's business, it's business, business to consumer, right? It's just delivering wow. consumers. The hives are located all along the interstate. So the hives are located on the 401. And, it, and so I would say on my app, I'm going to Toronto. And I would say, pick up at Highway 6 in the 401, pick up 14 parcels, and I'm going off on Mississauga Road. So on your, going off on the off-ramp, drop off these 14 parcels to a hive. Someone would say, I've got two hours to kill, go into their app, and they say, great, pick up 42 parcels at Mississauga Road in the 401 and deliver them to these uh, subdivisions. So, so, Jim, where where was Shipper B operating? Uh, you, you, a lot of the places, a lot of our listeners are outside of, they're, they'd be in different places all around the world, and, and some in, mostly in the United States. So some people won't know these references to Mississauga and 401, even though we know those because we both share the same geography. So where was Shipper B sort so, of operating? So geographically, we were greater Toronto area. Because Got you it. are in Toronto, you will know when I say Oshawa through Barrie, through Niagara Falls, through London. That was the geography that we were doing. But it's the greater Toronto area is what we were. And the plan is and was to spread that across North America because the same technology, you know, the beauty of technology, once you've got the technology, it doesn't matter whether you dump it in uh, New York City or uh, Cleveland, it's all the same. Um, we learned that the technology or that this solution works best in suburban areas. So uh, best in the, the suburbs, not the, it doesn't work as well in the metro areas because if you might be in downtown Toronto, but you probably don't want to deliver parcels in downtown Toronto because you have to find a place to park and it, you know, control that. I would need to drink heavily. <laughs> it's not as good for, I have to live in the suburbs and this little community of Guelph and 
like you yeah. know, can just park on the curb and drop their parcel at my house and park in my park driveway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. Okay, so now I'm 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 clear on the business. That's cool. It sounds expensive to get off the ground. Like I think about these other gig economy companies like Airbnb, Uber. I mean. They, they have raised truckloads of money to create what they've created. What was the capital structure of Shipper be like? How did you like accumulate the money to, to get this thing off the ground? So I put $5 million in and uh, we raised another 20. So we had about 25 million in capital to uh, launch and, uh, and do the business. So that's, that was the capital structure. So that's a big nut. That's a big check for you to write. Uh, what was that like? Have you ever written a check that big to fund an idea effectively? Uh, I, I have, but um, see, I started my first business from the trunk of my car and I grew it to a couple billion in sales and I sold it. And then I did a lot of angel and venture capital. So I, I'm comfortable. Entrepreneurs take risks. So this sure. is calculated risk. We're doing what we said we were going to do. Um, and uh, way calculated risk works, some of them work, as you know, and some of them don't work. And uh, you've got your winners, you've got your losers, and that's just the nature of entrepreneurship. So you, you had $25 million of startup capital, five of which you kicked in. The other 20, was that VC or like? I, 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 it's kind of angel capital, um, okay. but it was largely for friends and family. So it's mm-hmm. large friends or family. There was a couple of VC um, firms in it, but I wouldn't call it a traditional VC round, if that makes sense. Well, okay. So you've obviously had tremendous financial success. Why not do it all yourself? So if I'm your, you know, your friend or family member and you come to me and say, Hey, I got this idea for shipper B. I know you've had successes in the past. Like, but so my, my, did you get people turning around and say, Hey Jim, if you think this is such a great idea, why don't you take the flyer on it? Yeah. So my main problem, again, being an entrepreneur is I'm basically fully invested. And uh, so I bought my company, Danby Appliances about five years ago, and that used up almost all of my working capital because Danby Appliances, which is a business which I currently run today, currently have today, it's a $400 million manufacturer of appliances. You realize the amount that, well, I can let you figure out the amount that I would have paid for that is not insignificant. And the working capital required to run an appliance company is not small either. So basically I had most of my money tied up in this. And for what it's worth, I've seen so often that most entrepreneurs do have a lot of their money and a lot of their resources tied up. Yeah. 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 Got it. Okay. So you got this nest egg, $25 million to build Shipper B. Um, the economics here or the individual business uh, pays Shipper B to move the package through these hives to their end. So it's, it's a per shipment. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Payment. Yeah, yeah. How big did you did you get this business? Like how much revenue did you have? Or, you know, give me a sense of a proxy for how big it became. We were moving about 6,000 parcels a day. We have 150 employees. Um, I can let you do the math on it. I mean, parcels sell for in the $10 range, a little bit less, but uh, so we'd scale it some, but not massive. 
and mm -hmm. it had the ability to scale in a massive way because the parcel industry is growing at in leaps and bounds. There's not enough capacity in the in the parcel industry, so the parcel industry needs uh, needs capacity. I mean, that's the other beauty of that business. Unlike my Danby appliances, if I want to sell more bar fridges, then you have to buy less LG and Samsung bar fridges. It's it doesn't tend to be a market where there's uh, unsatisfied demand. Actually, that's not true. Appliances right now, you can't get fridges and freezers because everyone's pandemic, but that's another story. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I'm doing the math. Um, 6,000 parcels a day. Is that what you said? 6,000 parcels a day? Yeah. Ballpark 10 bucks a parcel, $60,000 a day, a million eight. If I'm doing my math right, I was never that good in math. Uh, a month, 20 million a year. If we want to just be ballparking it, if ballparkish, yeah, yeah, okay, got it. That's super helpful. My grade eight math teacher is clapping right now. He's saying, "See, buddy, I knew you could do it." <laughs> <laughs> and 150 employees are those contract employees moving stuff through the hives, or are those full time employees working in the just in the technology and stuff? That was full time employees. Gotcha. Okay, how long did you? have the business from startup to the point where you, you'd grown to 20 million or ballpark 150 employees? Three years. So it took us three years to grow to the size we were before we sold. I feel like you're the Elon Musk of Canadian business that I've never heard of you. Why is that? Why is that possible? How is that possible? You have a $400 million appliance company. You scaled a business like 250 employees in three years. Am I living under a rock or do you keep a low profile at it intentionally? I don't know whether I do or not. Um, I don't, well, now that I'm on your show, you see, that'll change. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and what I'm doing is not Elon Musk scale. I'm doing things on much smaller, much smaller scale. And there's gazillions of us out there that do things on it. Well, I think it's incredible. Three years. Amazing. So, okay. So this is a, I mean, as I hear this story, part of me is thinking like, this is a, this is a game changing technology. If this works in the greater Toronto area, um, there's, there's thousands of Toronto's out there that could equally work as well in the San Francisco Bay area or the, you know, the, you know, the suburbs around New York. I mean, like this could scale. So you said that was part of your vision. What changed? Why, why sell? I guess is my question. Well, I guess I could say we built the business to sell. So I always knew we would sell because as I said, I have Danby Appliances. I already have my $400 million company. So I built it deliberately. It was a spin out of Danby Appliances. Um, Danby Appliances makes a product which is a smart parcel mailbox. So when you get a parcel delivered to your front porch, the, the UPS driver puts it in, it sends you an email or a text, you can look on the IP camera and see who's there. And that same technology is what we used in the hives. So the hives have the same camera, same, much of the similar. So it sort of was incubated at Danby, but it's a completely different business. We're not selling appliances, we're selling shipping. So it was deliberately set up to do that. And although you say, oh yeah, $25 million is a lot, but you acknowledge that uh, Airbnb and Uber had many, many multiples of that. Um, and that's what you would need to scale this across North America and, uh, or even across Canada. It's, it's, you need multiples of that because the hives are not uh, free to build. I mean, they're a few thousand dollars, uh, $3,500 each and to do North America, 10,000, uh, 
buys. I mean, it, pretty soon it adds up to, you know, you, you can blow through $100 million pretty easily, $200 million. Mm-hmm. Um, the other issue in all technology companies is speed. And Chipper B was enough out there that enough people could see it and someone could say, hey, I'm going to go and do this in Minneapolis. But then you need to figure out how do you make a hive and how do you, you know, you have to replicate. But you're best when you own a technology company to make it so that your technology is big, broad, and pervasive so that someone can't go and copy you. Another part of our business is we had many patents. And so that's another attraction to a company buying a company like a shipper B. They don't want to run into the patents to say, oh, now when, I, when we go to do our little transfer mailboxes, we're going to hit a patent. Uh, what did you patent? Uh, well, we patented the, the process. We patented many points of the, around the hive. We pat, we patented uh, um, like we patented multiple things. We'd have twenty patents in the works. Um, what did you spend on on creating patents? Like if you if you could ballpark it, are we talking hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars? Like ballpark it for me. L- low millions. Low millions. Yeah. yeah. So that was clearly something you were focused on was protecting some of the, the methodology associated with the hives. Yes. Because when you sell a company like this, one of the things you sell is you're selling your intellectual property and companies looking at buying it. They say, Oh, well, we'll we want, we'll go. Cause any company's buying to say, well, we don't want your, your company. We'll just go do it ourselves. But then you say, Oh, we're going to go do it ourselves. But then someone's going to sue us for patent infringement. Oh, we've, you know, stealing these ideas. We, we can't do it. So it, in a way it's a, it's a, barrier it's only one thing but it's one thing in addition to all of the other things that people want the number of parcels we're shipping per day is actually not that meaningful that someone's gonna say oh i want that revenue because um you know six thousand parcels it's just not that meaningful for uh especially for a big courier company like uh you know if you said that to uh ups or fedex they'd sort of say like you know what what's <laughs> that that's a big yawn right Right, right. Okay, so back to my question, which I've forgotten your answer to, so that's my bad, but what was the impetus to selling? You mentioned you were always building to sell, but was there a straw that broke the camel's back or something that happened that made you want to sell? Okay, so part of our issue, we obviously hit COVID and COVID changed the model and uh, made it so that it shortened our runway because our costs went up. And that was an issue. The other thing, when you go into business, you make a lot of assumptions. And what we learned is some of our assumptions were not right. And it was going to take us longer to get past those assumptions. And the biggest assumption in the parcel delivery business is density. You make very, very good money if you deliver 100 parcels in Woodstock. You don't make very good money if you deliver three parcels in Woodstock. So Woodstock, by the way, for folks listening, is a tiny little outcropping... Between Toronto and London, Ontario, I think. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a small town. Population of 30,000 or 35,000. So it's it's a nice small town. But the bottom line is parcel density um, allows you to – it's one of the assumptions. We we did not get to the parcel density we wanted to. Um, And uh, the other reason to sell is the speed thing. Uh, As I said, speed and cost scale, right? Um, And in the case of selling Torstar – Torstar is a perfect buyer because they have excess resources. Like they, they have trucks driving with newspapers that are half empty. Well, they can put parcels in them and they have trucks coming back empty. They can put parcels in them. They have 1500 gig economy 
people delivering newspapers, it makes sense for them to get those people more work. So they already had a lot of core already built that we could leverage on. Gosh, where, yeah. um, so it, it was just a, a win-win. For folks listening, Tour Star uh, stands for Toronto Star. It's the largest metro newspaper in the Toronto area. So it'd be like just a big, you know, a big news, you know, metro newspaper trying to reinvent itself in many ways, given the digital, you know. Well, and, and Torstar owns, I don't know how many, I'm going to say 60 or 100 regional newspapers. So that's right. They own newspapers right across Canada that they are delivering to home residential addresses. So they, this business can scale for them right across Canada. And of course, the traditional newspaper business is under siege, under fire. Um, so it fits that they would Gosh. logical, they should do something more. What a beautiful little st- strategic fit. Did you have, did, when did you come to think of Torstar as being a, a natural acquirer, having that strategic rationale or thesis, if you will, when did you come to think about that? So they were not even on my radar when we started the business. And I always thought we would exit to, um, either a FedEx or a UPS or a, um, I thought we could exit to an Uber because Uber has a lot of gig economy people. Thought it could exit to an Airbnb. They, so there's those sorts of players. Uh, could exit to an Amazon. Torstar announced, I think it was in October or November of 2020, that they were entering the parcel business. So they only said they were going to enter. And when they said they were going to enter, I said, well, that's on. For sure, that's very entrepreneurial for a very large newspaper. I have no idea how many employees we could talking, 500 or 1,000. Like, it's very, very entrepreneurial of them. And it made total and logical sense. And our system works even better for them than any other courier because they're just sort of starting and, they, and they're open. It, one of the problems you have is people don't tend to disrupt themselves because they're already doing things a certain way and it's easy. It's not easy to embrace some new way of doing things where uh, Torstar, they weren't as ingrained in doing what they do. Um, like one issue that we had in our business is there, the part of the problem is you have a three sided marketplace. One side is the shippers. You need to have enough shipping volume that went, but, but you need to have enough drivers because if you signed you tomorrow and you're going to ship a thousand parcels sure. and you don't have enough drivers. So you have to balance those two sides. And the third side is hive placements. Do we have enough hives in the right places? Well, Torstar also has places where they already drop their newspapers with relationships with various landlords. So it fits well also from that point of view, because the truck's already dropping newspapers somewhere to drop some parcels, to pick up some parcels. Um, and the hive is perfect for them because it's unattended, um, sure. standalone units with the cameras and stuff like that. See, a lot of the newspapers right now are dropped on someone's, you know, porch. Like they're, they're dropped, you know, where someone essentially could steal them. You're not going to do that with parcels. You want to have more security. Sure. I, I want to put things back in reverse for a second because I want to go back because we've gone down the route of talking about Torstar's strategic rationale, which I think is beautiful. And man, it's like peanut butter and jelly kind of fit. But before we do dive too far into that. I want to go back. So you mentioned COVID uh, was a game changer. A lot of these business to business shipments, uh, I guess maybe I don't, I don't want to say that. In what way did COVID impact the business? Well, um, 
one thing, when COVID happened, we turned over almost 100% of our drivers. Most of our drivers were retired people. All of a sudden, they signed, and they signed up for what they thought was a safe gig, go make a little bit of spending money. And then all of a sudden, you say, oh, there might be some danger here because you're doing that. We had, um, so we had a, a challenge with, uh, with COVID and uh, just the same as other businesses had a challenge with COVID. Uh, there was lots more parcels out there that are sh being shipped, of course, but at the same time, parcel prices did not go up much. So uh, we, we ended up with higher costs to deliver um, parcels. And um, I mean, one of our assumptions was if you get a background check, which costs almost $100, that you'll deliver a thousand parcels over the, but if, and that assumption was wrong if, if you only, you know, get your background check and deliver 50 parcels, in which case all of a sudden it costs a lot per parcel. I mean, I'm assuming that the business at this stage is still bleeding cash. It's only three years in. You're growing like in a hockey stick. You're you're not profitable, are you at this point? No, or what? No, we're still losing money. Yeah. Okay, so you're 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 bleeding cash. Were you at a point where you sort of had to make a move, either raise more money, or or did you still have tons of money in the bank, or like where were you at financially at this point? Well, so we still had money in the bank. We had what we always call what's our run, what's our runway. So we had almost a year's runway that we keep going, but we mm -hmm. couldn't sustain our growth rate and still have a year's uh, cash. And I know enough about raising cash. You don't want to raise cash when you need to raise cash, or else you'll be in trouble. You don't actually want to sell when you need to sell, or else you're going to be in trouble because if if I couldn't sustain it for another two weeks, then, then uh, the buyer's going to buy it for nothing because, and, and not only that, the buyers, when they buy, they have access to this stuff. Like there's data room and they can see what your sure. finances are and they're not stupid. As a matter of fact, one trick that buyers often I've seen done is they look at it and say, oh, you can only last another two months. We'll just slow this down and, uh, and wait until you crash into the ground. So I, that's where I had to speak with bravado. Oh, no, I'll just keep funding this thing forever and, and check me out on the internet you'll see I can do that. And uh, so get that one off the table. So that's not a negotiation point for them. Love it. Love it. Okay. So let's get, so let me see if I, if I'm hearing you correctly and just feel free to correct me if I've, if I've misunderstood. You grow like crazy. You have this idea, you raise money given your pedigree and all of the, you put in your own money and raise additional money. The business grows really, really fast in three years, and you reach a bit of an inflection point where you realize that potentially you made a bit of a miscalculation in the, in the importance of density in the model. Equally, COVID comes as a black swan, totally unexpected, and your drivers turn over. And, and so there's turmoil. You look ahead and say, I've got a year's worth of money here. I could continue on. But you must have also felt a bit of uh, uneasiness about continuing on. And maybe um, help me. Possibly there's uneasiness continuing on. And part of the issue is a year's worth of runway when it's January 1st, no company in this business is going to buy anything in Jan like January, fe February, because December is the biggest month, right? So they're coming off of September, October, November, December, and then all of a sudden sort of rest in January. That's why the timing of this and we would have had just barely enough cash to live to an exit in January of 2022. That's one issue. Um, the other thing, when you build a business with the purpose of selling, it's not 
I don't have the same attachment that many entrepreneurs have to their businesses because I don't eat and live and breathe this. I'm CEO of Danby Appliances and I happen to be CEO at Shipperbee, but my, I don't know, my job, my ego, my life doesn't change a lot because uh, I'm not CEO of Shipperbee. I was always CEO of, of Danby Appliances. So there's a, that's a difference between my business and someone else's. I was deliberately building this to, to sell. Um, right from the start. And when we build a business to sell, we also build it in such a way, for instance, we had the data room uh, fully operational every single month. So anytime there was new articles on the company, new uh, leases signed, new anything, then everything goes in the data room. So when, when it's time for someone to do some due diligence, it's like, yeah, here's the keys to the data room because it's current. Where when I've sold other businesses in the past, it's like, oh, no, now we have to go and find all of our employment uh, agreements and all of our leases and all of our legal agreements and all of our, you know, file our financial statements and everything. Let's build the data room. And that can often take, it doesn't sound like much, but it can take a month. It can take six weeks. Uh, who's got this agreement? Who's got that agreement? And uh, if you're not building the business to sell, you can also end up with some um, some uh, ugly stuff that's in the middle of things, if that makes sense. Because uh, you're uh, because you're just doing things entrepreneurially, and you may be doing things that aren't uh, aren't right on target. If that makes sense. Sure. So I just want to go back to something you said earlier. Uh, the best time to sell a business like this is, uh, you know, December. Just want to clarify: Were you saying that most M and A deals? irrespective of industry get done in the fourth no. quarter or no, no. in no. your case, because of the, the way the shipping is. No, I, I, I would say that you can't sell a business in the fourth quarter in the, in the parcel shipping business. Okay. Because the courier business, the parcel business volume is so high in the fourth quarter, everyone's spending their time on that. So you could sell it in the first, second, third quarter. You can't sell it in the fourth quarter. And we were going to run out of cash about the fourth quarter. So you're, you'd kind of be uh, whatever. And to some extent, you're also coming off of pretty good numbers because you just came off of a December. And look at our parcel volume in December where we knew and know sales uh, or parcel volume is going to be down in January, February, March because um, e-commerce sales are down in January, February, March, right? Did you have any sense, again, this prior to COVID hitting, and the drivers turning over and the discovery of the density issue, like, did, did you have any sense of what it might be worth? Like, did you, were you working on any sort of assumptions relative to a multiple of revenue that you were, nah, maybe we could get X. Like, did you have any sense of that? Uh, well, the problem you have when you're selling a business, you always have lofty valuations and, uh, and the ranges are incredible from not much to a lot, a lot. And so uh, there are some multiple of revenue. There's a multiple of cut number of customers or number of parcels in the parcel industry because it's a parcel industry. Um, multiple of patents or multiple of R&D is another way that uh, some companies are, are sold. And it really depends on the buyer and how they choose to value but, I mean, you, you're admittedly like a, like a highly sophisticated business person. You must have had some sense of how the company would be valued. Did you think it was going to be a multiple patents or were you thinking a multiple parcels shipped? Like, so you I must have had a sense of that. So my sense would be it would be a multiple parcels shipped, but multiple patents sort of a uh, multiple of R&D sort of uh, cements it a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. in, whenever I sell a business, I always look for a synergistic buyer sure. as opposed to a financial buyer. 
So we could sell to a private equity firm who then goes, but then what they're going to do is they're just going to try to make a markup by selling it to a strategic buyer. A strategic buyer, like in this case, Torstar, we're able to use capacity that they have that surplus, that it's it just so win-win, so easy, easy for them to do things at a lower cost than what we could. So as a, a seller, our job is to try to get them to pay some of that value as opposed to them taking all of that value. But having synergies also allows you to not fight over the little stuff, if that makes sense. It's like if, if I could buy your house and I know I can turn it into a um, hotel and uh, you know, sell for $20 million, then I'm not going to sweat that you know, you're, you're, you've got a little leak in the roof because like that, okay, great, we'll fix that. It's going to cost- The roof's coming off anyways. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, synerg- so I'm a big believer in selling to a synergistic buyer as opposed to a uh, straight financial buyer. Got it. So what, when we get to multiple of parcels shipped, like what were you seeing from other deals that, that you might have as a multiple of parcels shipped? So that's another issue in, in our industry. We didn't see very many companies sell. So there was not a good guide on even a multiple of, of uh, parcels or a multiple of R&D. So I guess to some extent, I even changed my story here. We sold on synergistic value right? So what's the value to the buyer and how much can they turn this into how quickly? Um, in the end, all valuations come back to some sort of discounted cash flow, except as you point out, we weren't making money, but a synergistic buyer can easily and quickly make money because they don't have to do more background checks on their 1500 drivers, which they already have. They, they don't yeah. have to add more um, cost to drop these parcels at highs because they've got trucks that are driving by anyways. Um, they don't have to um, pay much for the uh, the space for the landlords to place the hives or the transfer points because they already have relationships with them. So there's so many synergies that they have and expenses that they don't have, which they can use. And there's other synergies that a, a newspaper has. They're actually in the newspaper business. They're in the flyer business. So they can actually go to uh, Best Buy and say, oh, we can ship your .com shipping. Sure, there's tons of you know, and we'll a full page yeah. ad in our newspaper and, and a full page ad in the newspaper doesn't cost them much. So they had a lot of synergies on the selling front as well. That yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I can, I can see that for sure. Um, so it, just to go back to this valuation piece, my sense is again, correct me if I'm misinterpreting is that uh, you, uh, you were very much taking the view that, let's let the buyer arrive at a valuation that, that there just weren't benchmarks for you to work from that, to that, the extent that you felt. That is correct. Okay. Uh, and uh, you had asked me what mistakes do we make in the negotiation? And one mistake that we made in the negotiation, this is a tough one. It, when you suggest a price, that is often an anchor that people use. Mm-hmm. And our mistake was making the anchor price too low. Okay, that's interesting. And uh, I mean, it's the same. It, it, the house example is a perfect example. You say you're going to sell your house for a million dollars. That's my anchor price. I might come in and say, "Great, I'll offer you 1.1. Know that the deal will close." Or, "Okay, I'm going to lowball you. I'll offer 950." And then you say, "But that's the range." It would be highly unlikely that you'd say a million dollars for your house. I say, "Oh, great, I'll pay you two. It doesn't yeah. work. 
way. Um, now it is possible though, if you say, oh, you want to sell your house for 5 million, I'd say, okay, John, I, maybe I'll just go look at any of the other uh, thousand houses because that's not even happening. So you could scare the buyer away by too high of an anchor price. Um, but I believe in this case, we anchored our price too low, partly because the synergistics values were not, I, I hadn't, we had not thought them through as much until we start drilling into it. So I, right now I explain it to you and say, oh yeah, I get it. You should have known all of that. You're right, we should have known all of that, but it was not as instantly um, apparent as it became over time on what their, their synergies are. Okay. I want to get into that because I think that's a, that's a really meaty piece to dig into. Prior to though, there is an obvious question that, that's coming to mind, which is how did you raise 20 million bucks, which to a lot of people listening to this be like, wow, that's a lot of money to raise. How did you raise money without some form of benchmark valuation in mind, like without saying, and we can, by the way, exit this business for Y dollars down the road because this is the valuation in the shipping game. Like, how did you make, how did you raise money without a sense of what companies were, were going to trade at down the road? Well, back then you're basically selling uh, off a of PowerPoint. You're saying, here's what we're going to do. And then people say, well, the reason that we think you'll do it is because you've done it before and you'll do it. And, and as it turns out, one of the slides in the deck is if we got 1% of the increase in the shipping volume, not 1% of the shipping volume, 1% of the increase in shipping volume for three years, it's a billion dollar company, a billion dollars hmm. a sales company. And so that was enough to anchor that this is going to be a big play, not a little play. And, um, the investors that go into something, if I'm selling you something that's based on a PowerPoint, you are not going into it and saying, okay, great, you're going to make a 12% return. You're going to make a 6% return. No, 6% return is when I show you a real estate play or something that's uh, yeah. boring and slow growth and has revenue and, and whatnot. So the investors were, I'm going to say, largely technology investors, largely high flyers find the next uh, unicorn, not just, uh, uh, you know, single digit returns. They were, you were shooting for the fences shooting, and they were like, shooting for the fence, right. Batting for the fences. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. That's super helpful. So you're figuring you got to, you don't have to sell, but one option is to sell because you're going to run out of cash by Q4 and that's not a great time to sell. So what did you do next? I mean, did you hire an M&A advisor? Did you shop it yourself? Like, what was that? What was the next step you took? So I did not hire an M&A advisor. And yes, I shopped it myself. However, I'm not sure I would recommend that for everyone else. I just happened to have bought a lot of businesses and sold a lot of businesses. So I have a lot of experience in buying and selling businesses. Mm -hmm. um, I, of course, I might have done better using an advisor, but I did not use uh, I did not use an advisor at all. So, who did you go to in the long list of folks you approached? Uh, did, did you, I'm assuming you went to the shipping companies. We, yes, so we went to the shipping companies. We got down the path with a number of them. Um, and what happens when you go to sell a company? You get the door slammed in your face quickly on some by some companies. Um, if you asked what are some of the mistakes we made. We might have done better had we left the doors open longer 
but we were kind of an assumptive sale saying, we are going to sell the company. Here it is. If you're interested in talking, talk. If you're not interested in talking, then I didn't, we didn't try to sell them into, uh, into this. So that's how we, uh, we, we did that. But yeah, it sounds like you almost gave him an ultimatum, like kind of you, you played your hand fairly forcefully uh, as opposed to, hey, let's do a partnership, uh, you know. We played our hand forcefully. And uh, I, I think to some extent it helps if you have credibility. You say you're going to do it. Then they say, oh, well, you're going to do it. You say you're, what you're going to do, you're going to do. And, and that's better than, you know, playing poker and thinking, well, maybe he's bluffing, right? So in a way, they called your bluff, right? Some of these guys said, "Okay, Jim, you're, you know, you're so confident you're going to sell. Well, go sell it." I, you know, like that exactly. was their reaction. Yeah, exactly. Um, I found also selling our business to traditional couriers. They uh, often people don't want to disrupt themselves. Like it, it's just if I said, "Oh, here's a different thing that's not called podcasting that's completely different than what you do," that might mm. not best thing to sell to you just because you're so used to doing podcasts. Sure. Uh, um, and I think that, that I hadn't fully calculated that in, in the exit uh, plans. Okay. So the shipping companies were, were one constituency. Who else did you go to on the long list? Uh, so we went to some of the uh, parcel shipping, uh, part, some of the parcel people that, that ship parcels as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh couple of the gig economy people, but we didn't push much at all. If people were, would talk, and I went to people that I had uh, warm intros to, not necessarily uh, just completely wild out of the blue. Um, so it was almost always a warm entry. And we got into conversations with a few different parties. And we still, although we sold uh, to Torstar, the interesting thing is we retained some of the intellectual property that we may sell again to one of the other courier companies, which is extremely win-win. I love it when you can sell a business twice. And yeah, uh, that sounds great. So what's, so how many folks did you get into some, let's call them serious conversations where you signed a so NDA got, and you're sharing. So yeah. we got into conversations with three parties. Three. Okay. And, and did you get all the way to a letter of intent from three? No, got it into okay. a letter with one, but, and, and I'm sure Torstar is going to listen to this, but yes, we got into a letter of intent with one and I, I would have preferred to have more, um, more buyers, but what we retained was some, uh, some of the intellectual property, which means we are, it's interesting because we actually have an ability to sell some of that again. And that's uh, very win-win for us. Yeah, no, for sure. So with these three folks, um, you're, you're obviously having conversations, but but Torstar is the one, one that kind of uh, presented their LOI. Um, you mentioned this mistake of, of sort of anchoring your price. At what point in the conversations with Torstar did the, the specter of valuation come up? How did it come up that you would put a price on the business? Um, it comes up relatively quickly, and that's healthy for both the seller and the buyer. Because you don't want me to come in and inspect your home, send my home inspector in, come back with my wife, come back with my kids, come back and visit it 18 times, and then find out, oh, you want $5 million for your house. And I thought we were going to buy something for nine fifty. dollars So sizing it up front 
it's also worth it's worthwhile for both parties to at least know you're kind of in the range um, that you're going to have a serious buyer who's willing to pay the price and you're going to have a, a, a willing seller. So I don't hide the price much. It comes up pretty quickly. And uh, that actually did shut down some buyers as well. So some buyers, you go in, you put a price on, and, and then they say, oh, thanks. But uh, we weren't thinking uh, of that uh, kind of price tag. But that's good to know because otherwise they waste our time. They waste their time. It's just not win-win. Plus, there is some confidentiality. So I, I like not, not sharing all the, the confidential information with people who are clearly not going to buy. It, it, yeah. And, and how did you arrive at a valuation for the company? Like, where did your number that you shared with Torster come from, if you know what I'm asking? Well, I'd like to say that it was scientifically derived, but it wasn't. It largely came from the air on what I thought I could sell it for. So it was largely what we thought we could sell it for. But like I said, I, I, I lowballed, partly because I didn't want to scare people away from the table partly because I also wanted to do the deal relatively quickly. Selling a business is disruptive to a business. It's disruptive to the staff. It's time intensive for management. Like there's nothing good about it. Um, And I actually believe the longer a a negotiation drags on, the lower the value is because the more, uh, I I mean, you're going to lose good people. They're going to say, oh, the company's being sold. I might not have a job. And everybody always catastrophizes and thinks the worst thing. They don't think the best thing. Oh, great. I'm going to have a better boss. I'm going to have a better opportunity. Um, so I guess I like things to move at a, at a pace. And that also yeah. my technology background, technology companies move fast. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so you, you've kind of have this number that you think you can get for it. Tell me about, uh, the investors, um, were you were you in any way trying to keep them whole, get them a return? Like, was there any attempt to sort of back into evaluation based on what you wanted to get them as a return on their investment with you? Yes, absolutely. Because as a uh, entrepreneur, like the people I raised money for, many of them were my friends and uh, friends and family, and, and I want them to uh, be happy with me. So sure. I my reputation is on the line. So absolutely that drove uh, part of the uh, uh, expectation for sale value. And I mean, I go back to uh, the time that we were, you know, certainly March of 2020. I mean, like we didn't know what the world would look like. Now, as we record this in March of 2021, we're still in a pandemic, uh, but I think at least we know kind of what we're dealing with to some extent, right? It, how it sort of travels and so forth. If we go back to March, April, I mean, we like, do you get it from picking up a grocery bag or, you know, like, oh, we, we had all these just, it was a very traumatic time. So I guess it's my way of saying, had you been able to keep your investors whole, and not get them a return, I would have thought as an investor, I would have been happy. Were you trying to get them a return? If so, are you able to share uh, what kind of return you were hoping to get them? Uh, so, go ahead. So now we're getting into areas that we're not willing or able to share because of okay. the confidential agreement. But uh, suffice it to say, yes, you absolutely have the interests of your stakeholders, of which shareholders are one of them, at heart and you're trying to get them the best return you can. Um, 
I guess the only comment I will make is when we started this, we thought this was a unicorn, which would be a next Uber, Airbnb. And when we exited, it is not, did not, it became evident that we were not going to be able to do the unicorn on this. Mm-hmm. Given that you can't do the unicorn, then you're basically trying to get investors um, an appropriate return, but you're not going to be a thousand to one or, you know, you know what I mean? On, on money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I don't mean this to sound in a in a, a negative way, but I, and I can't think of a better way to put it. So I'll just attempt to do this without sounding offensive. Was this? I mean, you've got this incredibly successful business in Danbury Appliance, a lot of money tied up. Was this like? Um, I don't want fire sale is not the right word, but I can't think of a, a better way to say it. But in, in a way, the world has blown up. COVID has just made this entire business. It's disrupted the entire business. Let's just get out with our, and, and live to fight another day? Or, or, or were you thinking more, no, no, I might re-up and put more money in in Q4 and go again. Like, did you have that as an option? Or was it like, I'm out, let's get the best I can and move on? Does that make any sense? It does make very good sense. And I think um, knowing what I know now, we were not willing to re-up. And if okay. you're not willing to re-up, then it's time to, to exit while you still can. So that was more the thinking, because when we first started, we legitimately thought this could be a unicorn. Take it North America wide, it'd be the next Airbnb, it'd be the next Uber, be the next, uh, you know, the next unicorn, BlackBerry. Um, and, uh, and then it became evident that, no, we're not going to be able to pull that off. Let's just pull off an acceptable uh, exit. And shareholders don't object to that. They're actually happy that you have an exit that uh, when they learn they're not going to have the unicorn. And they don't even judge you that you didn't have the unicorn because uh, in the investors you get, they're mature and they expect that. What it's worth, many of those investors will walk away from many other, many other investments with zero. Sure. I, I've invested in 150 startup ventures. I have exited from 25 of them. And that means I've got zeros on about 100. And I've got a few others that are still in the hopper, but you still have 100 zeros. And, and so it's a zero, zero. So I know as an investor, if you get some return you're you're uh you're never thrilled if you know you're expecting hundreds of percent return but you're still thrilled but but speed is important right so your capital's not locked up for 20 years and then get to like whole you're you're in and out in three years and exactly that makes that makes good sense um oh what was i gonna ask you related to with regards to torstar and again the reason i ask this question is i think a lot of entrepreneurs uh, and it relates back to what you said was your sort of quote unquote mistake or one of the things that you might do differently, this anchor pricing thing. I think a lot of entrepreneurs get asked the question, um, okay, Jim, well, what do you want for it? Uh, I'd be curious to know how it came up in conversation. Did you preemptively say to Torstar early in the conversation, uh, and we want X dollars for it? Or did they make the first move and say, okay, Jim's like, we're kind of notionally interested. What do you want for it? Like who made the first move on valuation? So we basically pinged them and said, are you notionally interested? They said they're notionally interested. Then I would have brought up the price relatively quickly, just okay. to make sure that they were serious and willing. Because the last thing you want to do is to have yeah. something kicking the tires that just is sitting there thinking it's, going to be nothing. Right. And so you're basically checking the seriousness of them. Yeah. 
Yeah. And what was that? What was the reaction? Like how many days went by between you emailing them the price and their response to that? Oh, that would have happened within, within days like that one day, two days. So everything is, uh, Oh, you're interested. Great. You're interested. Okay. You know, you, you know, that it will be some in this price range. It'll be in this price. They said, Oh yes, we, we, we can understand that. That's, um, that's okay. And then we get them all the data and whatnot. And, and then we say, what's the next step? And I, we would, we were on pace of, uh, meeting twice a week and we were ta- probably talking almost every day. They'd send us a list of questions. We would hop on a call, answer questions. Um, of course, then you at some point get to the lawyers and legals and they have to have one version and that gets turned by another lawyer that, you know, it bounces back and forth two or three times and then it gets, but we really shook hands on the deal. Um, and the lawyers really legalized it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't one which I do not like. And I've sometimes had it where the lawyers try to negotiate the deal or redo the deal. No, the deal is here's the deal. We agreed to this. We shook hands on it. And this is what we're, except we didn't shake hands because we were all doing it virtually. But yeah, well, Ward, Ward Buffett's a big fan of that, right? Like you should be able to write down in plain English the deal terms in one piece of paper. And, right. and don't send the lawyers in <laughs> until the one piece of paper is clearly agreed to, right? I mean, that's a. Sort of a Buffett playbook piece. Let's go. I want to just understand at what point did you realize or come to the realization that maybe you left a bit of money on the table by throwing out the price? Did at what point in the process did you think, oh man, maybe I'd like to do that again? Um, I would say fairly early on. Okay. Um, I, now this is probably almost advice for not the sellers, but for the buyers. And that is, um, whenever anybody gives you any price, you need to choke on it. Even if the price is a great price and they didn't choke hard enough is the problem. It, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't choke. So you thought, Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like me saying, uh, you know, I'll, I'll sell this pen and you say, great, I'll, I'll pay you, uh, uh, $20 for it. And I say sold. Then you think, Oh gee, I could have got it for 10. I, I, I it right. better off me. What do you mean? 10, $20 for this pen. Look, it's gorgeous pen. It's silver. It's uh, you know, it's my favorite pen. I've signed big deals with this. And, and then if I sell it to you for 20, it's still, I'm happy. You're happy, but I didn't choke. They didn't choke enough. That's my uh, concern. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh it's fantastic. I, uh, I know your time is precious and I want to be respectful of that. It, it, where are you at now? I mean, Danby is this hugely successful company where you continue to operate. You've got, as you say, other investments. Um, tell me a little bit about the book uh, that you wrote and, and what inspired that and what else you're doing these days. Oh, so, uh, I, I mean, I've written a couple of books, one on time management, one on marketing, but this is, this is well preceded any of this. And okay. those were largely marketing. So mar- mostly my focus right now is Danby Appliances, which is, you know, freezers, fridges, wine coolers, and we also have an air conditioner and dehumidifier business, um, selling through Costco and Home Depot and Lowe's and all the big guys, as well as Amazon and, and um, online. Um, and Danby Appliances has done well through the pandemic because everyone needs more freezers, everyone needs yeah. more uh, uh, fridge space, and even people are improving their homes, so they're buying more wine coolers. So we've been very fortunate through the pandemic to 
uh, thrive and do well. Uh, as a business, I fear what's going to happen over the next three or four years because governments have run up this huge deficit and the public is not willing to pay more taxes. So I'm worried that the government has to print more money and it's going to be inflationary. And does the economy go into the dumpster? But right now, the economy is not in the dumpster at all for for Danby appliances. So. Certainly for any home appliances and, and so forth. Last question, what will you do differently when selling Danby that you learned from selling? And it, I, I'll just I'll just pick, you know, Shipper B is one company, but I know there are many others. But this is your baby now. I'm assuming that th- this that you might change something or do something differently when selling Danby. Um, I think the main thing I had sometimes entertained, if I was ever going to sell Danby, I might look at financial buyers as well because Danby mm-hmm. has uh, you know uh, EBITDA and you could sell on a multiple of EBITDA and stuff like that. So I always thought, well, maybe a financial buyer would do it. But I've learned that a synergistic buyer will give a much better price. And so I, that's what I will do with Danby is look at a synergistic buyer if I were to uh, sell Danby. Well, we'll be watching and you're welcome to come back anytime and tell me all about that story too. Where's the best place to, for people to reach you? Are you a LinkedIn guy? Or? I'm, I'm big on LinkedIn. Reach out to okay. LinkedIn. I, I say yes to most people. And if you say you mentioned if you saw me in the show, I'll definitely uh, accept your... Uh, oh, that's, that's very kind, Jim. So it's Jim Esta. We'll put your, the spelling of your surname in the show notes at builttosell.com. This was great. I feel like I've met the Elon Musk of Canada and I'm feeling good about that. All right. Thanks, John. <laughs> hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.